Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. This is always a starting point for meaningful change inside ourselves and our families and communities. We pull up stories we've been raised on in the light of what we know now. We see what was not being said, hear the questions we scarcely allowed ourselves even to think. We recover lost chapters. My colleague in radio and podcast, John Bewan, has been doing this with the interwoven questions of what it means to be human and what it means to be white. In a series called Seeing White, to which many people have turned in 2020, I think John has modeled something. As a documentary investigative journalist who'd covered race with the best of intentions and rigor, he realized he'd been turning to others, people of color, to be searching about racial rupture and healing. He then turned the lens back on himself. So that's the conversation ahead between me and John Bewin. It starts simply, tracing the racial story of our time through the story of a single life. It's an exercise each of us can do, beginning with a curious eye on our childhoods and hometowns. And if we do this searchingly, it becomes a step towards a more whole and humane world, starting with ourselves. We don't need everybody to see all of this in order to change the world. We just need enough of us. And um, I do think there are probably more people than ever before that are recognizing these things and being willing to kind of do the work and being exposed to journalism, to books and documentaries enough to be able to see not only the way our brains work, but these stories that we've been taught, these narratives, that we can let go of them and we need to. I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being. John Bewin is audio program director at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies, and he's host of the center's audio documentary podcast, Seen on Radio. In that series, John has explored whiteness, masculinity, and democracy. During a 30-year career, he has told stories from 40 American states and from Europe, Japan, and India. Well, first of all, just to say, it's really important to me that my sense of our audience is that all kinds of people are listening. People mm-hmm. are listening who vote Democrat and people who are listening who vote Republican. And it's a moment where, you know, our fellow journalists are, you know, rolling out opinion polls that will be a yes, no, or up, down, or a multiple choice question that tell us that, you know, Fewer people are interested in Black Lives Matter or supportive of it than were a few months ago. And I just refuse to work with that as (laughs) evidence, right? Or to let that affect how, you know, move pushing what we're learning and what I think many people are learning, North and South, Red and Blue, you know, opening to this larger reckoning and awakening of which Black Lives Matter is a part And I do believe this is going to continue to shape our world moving forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I believe that our listeners cross all kinds of lines. And so, like, I want to be thinking about all kinds, people across all kinds of constructed lines as we're speaking. Um, I think, 
you know, not everybody, but more and more diverse people than we imagine or than the news gives us the impression are taking up this challenge of learning, mm-hmm. questioning mm-hmm. themselves, you know, creating the, a world they want their children to live in, mm-hmm. and yeah. up for the challenge of being the generation of our species that is ready to grow up. <laughs> I really, I, you know, I believe it, but more than that, I'm ready to, I'm ready to throw my energy behind it. Mm, mm, um, mm. So, so that's where I'm starting here. This is not just like a neutral informational conversation. I know that's not what you do. I. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that a lot, and I and I think I'm in a pretty similar place. Yeah, honestly, I, and I'm yeah, sure we'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think something a really a, a really uh, fantastic place to start is with kind of where you personally sit um, in terms of all these constructed formative divides. So, you know, you you do straddle a lot of these lines um, that are defining us and that and that are in danger of defining our reckoning um, around these matters of of what it means to be human and who who we are. And um, so you live, how long have you lived in, in North Carolina? You live in the South. Yes. Uh, I've been here since 2001. Okay. So coming up on 20 years. The entirety of the 21st century almost. Yes. Well, I moved, <laughs> I moved here a couple of months before 9-11. Yeah. And uh, yeah, been here ever since. Um, and you grew up... In a liberal family in the northern liberal state of Minnesota, where yes, I'm sitting least, now. <laughs> yeah, we have traditionally thought of Minnesota, at least in these decades, as being liberal. It's, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I guess I wonder, if I asked you the question this way, like, how would you start to tell the story of what it means to be white in America through the earliest story of your life, the background of your life? Mm. Well, I guess... A really important thing that comes to mind when you ask it that way is seeing myself absolutely as the default generic person and as a quote-unquote white person in southern Minnesota in the 60s and 70s when I was a child that's very easy to do right there's a sense that um like when you say default, base, do you mean like the baseline person, like the, the norm? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So sort of like people look like me, mm-hmm. and and my family, and then there are other people. The way that you know we say it at one point in seeing white, we say that white people are just people, and then race is something that other people have. Right. So that occasionally you see a black person or a Native American person, and they are they are racialized. Like that's oh. There's a there's a person who possesses the characteristic of having race, <laughs> and and I, and I'm just a human, right? So when I think back on my childhood, I think that's that's how I went through the world, moved through the world. Another thing that comes to mind is is my understanding of that place and of history. Um, it strikes me so powerfully now that I was born um, 99 years after the U.S.-Dakota War, which was a, a bloody, actually in that region of the country, fairly, fairly cataclysmic event that I've done right. a documentary about since. 99 years, that's nothing 
right? And that was that happened at a time of intense um, in migration of of Europeans to that part of the world, and so it was so new. It was so new when I was born, and I could grow up as an eight or ten year old child and look around saying, "Like this is the way the world is. This is kind of how it's always been in this place." Yeah, and um, and you can see yourself as that default person. <laughs> Exactly. And yeah. if you if I heard about a farmer whose family had been there a hundred years, like, wow, that's almost forever. Mm-hmm. And now a hundred years, especially having done a whole bunch of uh, documentary work going fairly deep into history, I see how short a time a hundred years is. And that changes your perspective dramatically, too. I'm, I'm curious, you know, I'll say that Especially, you know, not just in 2020, but especially moving through 2020, really moving through these last years in our country. Yes, we're learning things about history that we didn't learn in school. Um, but I've also, I've found this to be a time of kind of remembering what I think of as embarrassing stories from my childhood, hmm. of that cluelessness, right? Or hmm. I don't know, somewhere you use this language of the drip, drip of whiteness, mm-hmm. the relentless drip, drip of whiteness. I don't know, like, are there stories that you think of from school or from inter- inter- racial interactions you had or ideas you had that you look back and and really cringe and realize that they were formative and you didn't even think about them until you were forced to? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, Um which to choose. <laughs> uh, there's the really concrete experiences like, um, I mean, the town that I grew up in, Mankato, Minnesota, was, at least in my experience of it, was probably 99 plus percent white. And so there would be one family of black kids in the school that I went to for years, for example. And then I remember a time when a uh, another child I can't remember the circumstances, but there was a boy my age who came to our school. I would have been in about sixth grade or something. And I remember distinctly participating in that thing that now, you know, I've heard about a thousand times from black people as those as that kind of painful experience of standing around um, that boy. And I actually can't remember his name, but two or three of my friends and I touching his hair. Hmm. And, and noticing the kind of bouncy quality of his hair. And uh, isn't that kind of cool? And, uh, you know, talk about a cringe mm-hmm. you know, almost 50 years later. Um, also more broadly, mm-hmm. the sense that r- racism, too, was a place that happened elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, yes, the, and in fact, I grew up you know, in a family where race was talked about, my dad in particular, uh, he and he'd gotten a kind of strong sense of social justice and concern about about it from nuns <laughs> that he, yeah, who were his teachers in Catholic schools, but also yeah. he was an English teacher and and he would make sure that we saw the Sidney Poitier movies when they came on, or To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah. or A Raisin in the Sun, and he taught those books, and there was this kind. Of, but at the same time, so we had this consciousness, and absolutely any. You know, racism was off limits in our house. But at the same time, the whole the, the world where those things were happening, where those terrible injustices were happening, was someplace else. Yeah. And not only were we innocent, but our, kind of our whole region was innocent. 
and we also didn't so so my parents didn't seem to have much of a recognition of the history in that place of what white people had done to native americans and what yeah yeah our culture had done to native americans um but it wasn't really about me yeah um so you know i was looking your um gustavus adolphus where you went to college yeah. um they wrote an article about you and the headline was philosophy major becomes a radio producer is that what that? the headline was yeah, yeah. that's what the headline was. <laughs> Um, so I want to ask you this question, and it's, I, I don't even know, um, you know, if you think about now, after all that you've been observing with this, like what the spiritual consequences of that, what you just described in you were, however you would use that word spiritual, more philosophically, mm. more, um, more religiously. Mm. Well... You know, I I know that you sometimes on your show you ask people about their yeah, <laughs> and it, and maybe well, I guess like yeah, you know, I guess like the way I'm kind of pointing at it now is I think that the way we've all been, especially around whiteness, though, like there, that has been a spiritual background <laughs> of mm. the childhood and of the life of anybody who's white in this world. And so that's kind of how I'm I'm thinking about it being focused in this conversation we're having. Mm. I might get to your question in a kind of roundabout way, but let yeah. me start by saying, so So my parents were uh, Roman Catholic, and they left the church by the time I was about seven years old. Oh, okay. So, in, you know, in Mankato, Minnesota, it, it was pretty unusual to just be a kid who didn't go to church. Um, so now, I guess you could describe me as a practicing Buddhist. Um and I think sometimes I've thought that there's a parallel in some ways between some of the key ideas that Buddhist teachers talk about and a process of a, a kind of anti-racist work, which is, you know, there's there's an element of kind of um, uh, letting go of our, <laughs> you know, sort of loosening your grip on aspects of your identity or of the things that you thought you knew. Yeah. And of a kind of growing comfort with a process like that, uh, and kind of sitting with with discomfort or with that process of kind of I, I like to say you know strengthening the letting go muscle, which is a kind of yeah. paradoxical way of saying yeah. It. Um, you know, having spent decades of thinking that I was one of the good ones, you know, one of the good non-racists. Mm-hmm because of the way I was raised and because look, I'm like a public radio journalist and I've reported on race. And <laughs> right, right. so clearly I'm, you know, I'm one of the good white people yeah. to then be confronted with um, history and facts and analyses that sort of make you go, Oh, wait a second. There's, there are several deeper levels here uh, and there's deeper, much deeper work that I still have to do. Um, yeah. And, and being, yeah. I guess, with trepidation and with limitations, I'm sure, trying to have the courage to do that work. Yeah, and so it feels like you um, you turn that lens personally, but then you are a journalist and an investigative journalist, and you also kind of turned it at your profession and at the questions you were asking mm. as a journalist. And I mean, here's some you said as you started to think about whiteness in yourself and in the place you grew up in, that whiteness is actually the story. Mm. Yes. 
Yes, that wh- white people are the story. Yes, and and so as as a journalist who on and off throughout the 30 plus years I've been doing this, I thought of myself as someone who was interested in race and covered race. But what that almost always meant, pretty much always meant, was that I told stories, I covered issues, I produced you know, pieces that had to do with people of color, pointing my microphone at people of color. So telling a story about life on the reservation for Native Americans or, or what's going on with um, you know, efforts to deal with poverty in a low-income black community or you know, historical documentary that sort of looked at what had happened to black people during the civil rights movement, you know, and, and, and coming to realize that there was an elephant in the room in all of that reporting and that the elephant in the room was white supremacy. And it's not that those pieces were not acknowledging racism. They were often about racism, but it was always that sort of reporting fit neatly into a framework of the bad apples, and we're going to point that out and we're going to shine a light on it as a good journalist. But the larger systemic analysis of that was not there, that analysis and that acknowledgement were not there. So that in the process of turning to look at whiteness yeah. and saying, as you said, whiteness is the story, white people are the story. Yeah, that's a uh, really consequential shift in perspective. Yeah, the elephant in the room. Yeah. It's us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? It's us. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the matter of being human and being white with documentary journalist John Bewin. You know, it's very um, familiar to me. I mean, as you say, you grew up in a place that you'd have, you'd have one black family in the school. And yet this story of whiteness and of, of, of this very dramatic and at times very violent distinction of white versus non-white was so deep in the soil of that place that you lived where I live now um I mean even as you said I mean let's that that Mankato um I mean did you grow up in school in Mankato learning about the U.S. Dakota War which had a higher death toll than Wounded Knee or Little Bighorn yes exactly no I did not did not hear a thing about it in school Almost the more important point is that I don't remember it ever once coming up in any conversation that I was in or that I overheard among adults mm-hmm. my whole time growing up. And and I live in the South now, and the Civil War <laughs> shows up in conversation, you know, and the history of this place in terms of, you know, its racial its racial history shows up is acknowledged and alluded to fairly often. Um, Wrestled with for for better and for worse, right? Exactly. I mean, it's it's, it's an acknowledged part of the story of this place. You really can't escape it. And that's almost more that 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 violent um, 
upheaval in 1862 in the place where I grew up was just simply, it was as if it were uh, Napoleon at Waterloo or something. It was just some other little right, factoid right. in history, but it wasn't, right. it wasn't alive in that place as part of its story in a meaningful way. I think that's changed some, honestly, though, actually, since I was a kid. But um, I don't live there anymore, but I think, it's, I think it actually is acknowledged much more now than it was then. For the record, I want to acknowledge that. But I mean, yeah, I mean, just, you know, some what I learned from your um, and I live in Minnesota now and I agree with you. I, I think yeah. I've, I'm a, I am grew up in Oklahoma and I've actually been really impressed coming to Minnesota about how the history has been remembered in recent years. Um, I would I'd say pretty vigorously, but mm. but I mean, just. You know what I learned um, from you that I, you know, I think, and I, I've actually talked to people about this, but it's kind of these pieces of our history that you know you, you're shocked that they didn't register, and that they that because it's, it's mm. almost kind of hard to take in against the backdrop of the heroic story that we grew up learning in school. Um, yeah, and you, you know, you that that Mankato was the site of the largest execution in U.S. history. The U.S. government hanged. 38 Dakota warriors the day after Christmas under orders from President Lincoln in 1862 at the height of the Civil War. So that that memory that's so alive that you're living with in the South now is the same period of time as this. Exactly. Exactly. So that really that really stood out to me when I first of all learned enough about that story, about what had happened mm-hmm. to have it start to <laughs> sink in. Uh, but also at that point had moved to the South. And uh, yeah, and that contrast was really very striking. I think a very important difference is that the South lost and was devastated and, and life changed here in a dramatic way as a result of the Civil War. In Minnesota, people like me, people who looked like me and the overwhelmingly dominant white culture of that place were the winners. And and we trace in the documentary, we would sort of trace that history of how for a time after the war and the mass execution in Mankato, it was a big deal. And it was something naturally that people talked about. But then after a time, there was sort of a realization as the historian Mary Wingard told me mm-hmm. that uh, uh, this is not such great PR uh, when we're trying to get more settlers to come out here to Minnesota. Let's just kind of stop talking about that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, let's kind of talk to the extent that we acknowledge the Native Americans who uh, were here, you know, before us Europeans and are still here. Let's just kind of talk about them in sort of romantic ways, that this is kind of a nice exotic aspect of this place. And it's, but almost in a kind of disnified way. Um, there's a human desire that I think is shared by people everywhere, which Mm -hmm. is let's not, (laughs) you know, let's not talk so much about the really painful parts of the history of our, of this place where we live. That's, Mm -hmm. that's pretty close to universal, right? Especially when that history reflects poorly on, poorly on us, on us, those of us who are in charge now. (laughs) I mean, it happens in families too, if you think it's a, it's a, it's a larger canvas for what we do with what shouldn't have happened. 
Yes, I, and and I think it's it's there are layers to it, right? There yeah. there is on the one hand a, maybe a conscious decision, as I was talking about a, a minute ago about you know say ten years after the five or ten years after uh, those events happened to say ah we're trying to get settlers to move out here as a kind of official right you know, the state leaders and people like that, let's stop talking about that. And then there is, there's also then a process of the story being rewritten to reflect. uh, And and so for, for many years, as you know, and some of our listeners will know, you know, there was a version of that story that basically talked about it as if about the Dakota people just kind of rose up and went crazy one day right. and started attacking right. the white people because they're savages. Right, you know? there was a redrawing <laughs> of who were the victims and who were the perpetrators. Yes, and yeah. and yeah. Uh, it was, the Sioux uprising was the yeah. term that was used for a century. Yeah. Um, and so then there was a need not only to begin to remember it more fully, but also to, to just tell a more accurate version. a short break, more with John Buen. You can always listen again on the On Being podcast feed wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of forgiveness, generosity, and free will at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with my fellow journalist, John Bewin. We're exploring what he's learned, including about himself, through creating his 14-part audio series, Seeing White. Many have turned to this series, myself included, as part of searching and learning amidst 2020's ruptures. I think your um, Seeing White series, as much as anything I um, listened to this year, just very matter-of-factly kind of brings into relief. Um, I mean, it, it, this is a fact that race is man-made, it's invented, it's a, it's a social construct. Um, but I think, you you know, you, you interviewed somebody who said, a scientist who said, you know, genetically a room full of humans of different races is still more alike than a flock of penguins. <laughs> yes. Right? And really just brought this home, this core piece of reality and truth that we have to let register. And if we let it register, it changes. It must then, as we walk forward, change so much. Mm. Yeah, I I think we just, um, that was a shift for me too, that I find, even though, you know, it's very, very squishy, right? The way I think the the messages that we get about what race means. I grew up experiencing it as significant, right? That, that there was something. And as more than, you know, a paint job. <laughs> we're, right. we, you know, that we're all 99.9% the same. 
And the science says that it's really literally just a few genes out of the tens of thousands of genes that we all have that determine things like skin color, eye color, whether your hair is curly or not, you know, whatever. Um, the things that we associate with quote unquote race. And so, yeah, I, I, I have found it to be uh, significant and noticeable to just have that shift to just, uh, I don't know, I see people differently now and which is to say I see people as more the same now mm-hmm. um, and again I, I think there's this kind of recover like it's almost a recovered memory maybe that's a good analogy um, this recovery of how America has done this you know the, the white non-white and how who was white was always flexible so in some yes. ways, this awareness was there because it was manipulated, um, <laughs> right? And do you know what I was thinking, what I remembered? I keep having all these recovered memories from when I was getting ready to interview you. I won a, an essay competition growing up in Oklahoma hmm. in high school. I think I won $50, which was a very big deal. And, <laughs> and it was called How My State Got Its Name. Do you know what Oklahoma means? I don't. They put two Choctaw words together. It means red people. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so I did grow up in a state which was the former Indian Territory, and, you know, we probably don't, like, it's like these layers and layers that we just started on Peel with Manicato. We don't really have time to do that, but, but it is kind of the original geologic layer and it was also this creation of a category of red or, you know, I mean, you and I grew up with talking about yellow people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which would be Asian. And so in some ways we've come far, but we kept using language and our, man- our imaginations and constructing worlds around that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that sometimes it... It can be confusing to people when they hear that people like we have both just said that race is not a real thing biologically mm-hmm. or genetically. Mm-hmm. And people, what are you what are you talking about? I mean, just look look around. Clearly, there is this kaleidoscope of of difference in terms of what you might call ethnicity or whatever. Where there are dozens and dozens of there's a, this whole spectrum, right? And so there is difference, but the idea that there are three or four or five racial groups right and that those distinctions mean something and particularly that there's a hierarchy because that's what it was invented for that's why race was invented and that people would be treated fundamentally differently based on that particular difference yeah the people who called themselves white created this concept and created a hierarchy it was built into the to the idea from the start Mm-hmm. Both in terms of the slave traders who created, who invented blackness and whiteness for the purposes of justifying the Atlantic slave trade. And then as we got into the scientists, um, Linnaeus and Blumenbach and this, you know, the early people who were kind of codifying and categorizing and naming the world that they did the same thing with and called it science and said there are four or five or six races and the people we call white are the the superior one, you know, Mm -hmm. that is a story that people made up. Yeah. (laughs) That's what it is. It's also a story 
that our brains can comprehend and latch onto, right? Like I, I feel like one of the things that makes me hopeful about potentially this being the century where we turn a corner mm-hmm. is that we're understanding that this is how our brains naturally work. And I think we're learning to perhaps work with that need we have to categorize and and question it and not let it yeah. dominate us internally. I don't know. You're a meditator. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> right, right? Like that. that is a technology for understanding what's happening in your mind and shifting yes. it. Yes, yes. And I think the question is... Uh, we don't need everybody to see all of this in order to change the world. We just need enough of us. And, um, and that's right. I, think, I do think there are probably more people than ever before that are recognizing these things and being willing to kind of do the work and being exposed to journalism, to books and documentaries enough to be able to see not only the way our brains work, but these stories that we've been taught, these narratives, that we can let go of them. And we need to. And I think that's part of it too, right? And I think maybe that's what you were alluding to is there's this, and that's one reason I think that this moment of deep crisis is both alarming and scary, but also somewhat hopeful and hope-inducing, is that Moments of deep crisis have been the moments when societies have often been able to take these bigger turns and pivot and do something very differently. And actually to adopt some ideas uh, that were considered fringe and radical just a few years before, because now we see the necessity, in fact, of adopting those ideas and those ways of being. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the matter of being human and being white with documentary journalist John Bewin. I love that observation, and I kind of want us to walk forward with that, that we don't need everybody to be in the same place to move forward. Um, Because... It's come through loud and clear in the conversations I've been having this year. Um, And this seems to me kind of the frontier we have to step onto. Still a little underpopulated of white people talking to other white people. Mm. Yeah. White people talking to themselves. And then there being this reckoning that that is individual and collective and that looks... You know, just as you see, you know, what you did as a journalist, you started turning the lens and you were asking different questions. Um, I think um, a really pointed way, which I think could get me into trouble, is but get really, into truly, trouble, tru- okay, truly, this is a question I've asked myself this year, and I feel like I have to take it on this seriously, which is, you know, there's, 
there are the things people say, the attitudes they publicly hold, and there's a way we live, right? And it's not just, you know, so it's been possible to not be actively consciously racist, but to be absolutely living in a way that perpetuates injustice and dehumanization. And, you know, sometimes I, I have wondered, you know, are, are people who are just, you know, openly say disparaging things about people of other races, are they necessarily more racist or are they just more honest? If you really stack up, you know, all of us, how we've been living, including people who feel very consciously non-racist but haven't actually been anti-racist in this new mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. language we're using, which to me, we're on much more of a level playing field as white people than we have imagined, than certainly than the liberal end of that has imagined. I don't know. Does that feel too extreme to you? No, it doesn't. No, I think I think you're right. I think there's at least... It's hard to know ultimately, right? Like, yeah. how do we measure how racist a person is and put yeah. a, you know, put a, quantify that somehow? Uh, so I think you're probably right to a very significant extent, and I think maybe an even more, but closely related, important point is to say that that um, those kinds of things are not the imp- most important issue anyway, right? That the individual attitudes of someone or whether they tell racist jokes. That's not the issue. That's not the problem, fundamentally, and it's not the solution to sort of get people to be less racist individually in their hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the big takeaways of, of our work on the podcast is that uh, from people certainly like Ibram X. Kendi, is that the systemic change and change in policies and practices and actions mm-hmm. and systems is where the energy needs to be and how can I contribute to that work. Do you know Ruby Sales? She was a she's a civil rights elder. Yes. Theologian. Yeah, wonderful. One of our one of the elders who's with us and you know, she said to me in 2016 there's a spiritual crisis in white America and she she said, there's nothing wrong with being European-American. That's not the problem. It's how you actualize that history and how you actualize that reality. And she said, it's almost like white people don't believe that other white people are worthy of being redeemed. She was looking at our electoral, because this has, this has real, real world political consequences, um, especially in our current political crisis. I also think of James Baldwin writing that white people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. (laughs) And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow, this was in The Fire Next Time, and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist, for it will no longer be needed. (laughs) Wow. It, it actually is a truth of life, right? If you can't love yourself, you can't love anyone mm-hmm. else. And if white people can't figure out how to care about each other's well-being, that that's part of this reckoning as well. Yes, and um, 
you know, I don't know exactly what Ruby Sales or, or James Baldwin had in mind when they said those things, mm-hmm. but you know what comes to mind for me, at least in our moment, is, um, yeah, if you think about the intense political, call yeah. it po- tribal political division among white people, right? Yeah, dangerous. And, and I think that um, when black intellectuals, for example, will talk about anti-black racism as being at the core of Trumpism. It's not that I think that's wrong, but I think the the impulse by one group of white people to stick the finger in the eye of another group of white people is just about as powerful, right? And that division is very, very intense. And sometimes when I see I'm on Twitter too much. Um, And um, when I see, for example, a person of color saying, you know, you white people need to be talking to each other. Yeah. And there's a feeling of, uh, I wish that it were that easy (laughs) because those divisions seem very, very, very deep. You know, um, somewhere... You said this in script, and I don't know, I don't know, somewhere in, in one of the episodes of um, Seeing White. And I, I actually think this was about policies towards the Indian tribes. I mean, mm-hmm. you were talking about Jefferson. Yes. And you said, um, and that's just a story we don't even, we haven't even started to tell. I was recently looking at Jefferson and, you know, how he kind of laid the groundwork for what later happen in the Trail of Tears. Um, But you said, Jefferson, his argument with himself raged, but his self-interest won out. And I just, I wrote, wow, because that just kind of says it all. And, you know, I feel like Jefferson becomes, in hindsight, as we learn, he's so quintessentially American, right? He was elite Mm -hmm. and about the common man at all at the same time. He kind of transcends our divisions or he resides on every side of them, at least in our imaginations. And that sentence, his argument with himself raged, but his self-interest won out is, is another way to kind of like, it's a headline of our, of our history yeah. up to now. Yes. And I, and, I, and I feel really implicated in a statement like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what it makes me think of, and it, of course, what I was talking about there was his view towards slavery and the fact that he could say very harsh things about the evils of slavery. But he still owned 130 human beings when he died 50 years after the Declaration of Independence, after he wrote the words, all men are created equal. So, um, but yes, I think that, and this is the the danger and the caution and the, um, for all of us as white people, if if we're trying to do this work and we're trying to, trying to be anti-racist or trying to move the country toward an anti-racist future is that we always have the privilege, the option of, you know, bailing. Mm-hmm. And of, living um, in ways that are contradictory to our beliefs. Yes. Values, our stated um, values. Yeah. And, or, or to just not be part of the conversation or to not be mm-hmm. part of the work. Um, you know, that there's always this choice Right, to sort of engage or not engage in movements or in work that will change things in this country. And we can opt in and opt out very comfortably. 
mm-hmm. and there, there are few people around us, especially if like most pe- people, we're mostly surrounded by other white people who are going to call us out for that. And I think when I think back on somebody like Thomas Jefferson, I think he knew, I think he absolutely knew that slavery was evil, that it was it was deeply, deeply wrong and immoral. But the the people around him who mattered the most, there was literally just not that much public pressure that was going to uh, it was going to require him <laughs> to do what he knew was right. You know, when I reflect on that, I I find it hard to. Um, to get too high on my on my high horse, yeah. In thinking back on somebody like that, yeah. I I don't know where you. I wrote this down. It's something you said or wrote. I'm just going to read it to you. You were riffing on the Washington Post tagline: "Democracy dies in darkness." You know what I'm talking about? Was I? Yeah. Remind me. The idea that democracy dies in darkness and therefore thrives in light for me calls to mind the opening lines from Audre Lorde's 1985 essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury. Is that you? No, that's oh. not me. <laughs> Somewhere in your... <laughs> okay, well, it's really good. Quality, it is good. The quality of light by which we scrutinize oh, our lives. Oh, I know, what, I know where what that, that came that? from. That Has... came from, uh, uh, it's Lewis Wallace um, in, in our, uh, yeah, our most recent season. Okay. Lewis Wallace, yeah, I wrote that. The quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives has direct bearing upon the product which we live and upon the changes which we hope to bring about through those lives. The quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives, yes. that will define not just the stories we tell, but what those stories mean and what they make possible. I guess yeah. I want to say, I feel like what that, like you've been, that you've been modeling something. Um, you are a journalist, you are an in, a documentary investigative journalist but I think that kind of turning the lens saying am I looking in the right place am I asking the right questions and then deciding to delve into what you can discover mm. um, is actually modeling something that each of us can do with the stories of our families and our communities right our hometowns mm. you know and then what do we do with that new understanding of who we've been and how do we how do we turn that towards who we can be? Hmm. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I think we need a certain kind of curiosity. The quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives, you know, as Audre Lorde says, um, the quality of light that we apply, that we shine. Uh, you know, I've said elsewhere that we need to be, as, particularly as quote unquote white and I'm a cisgender white male, right? Um, that we need to be willing to approach these questions with humility and vulnerability that we traditionally <laughs> don't bring to the table and have not, it has not been demanded that we bring it to the table, mm-hmm. at least by one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we need to do that if things are going to change. You know, as, as I said in one place, that all that our systems of hierarchy and injustice, racism, classism, et cetera, all that they need to just sort of keep rolling along <laughs> is for all of the quote unquote good white people to just go about our lives. 
being good non-racist white people because the systems are embedded deeply enough in our society and our culture that they function pretty much on their own and so that we need to be about disrupting them and yeah that takes a certain kind of uh, openness in the way that we scrutinize things the way we look at ourselves the way we look at our relationship to the world as it is the way we look at how we all got to this moment and we need to be willing to rethink things and do things differently more to the point John Buen is audio program director at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies, and he's host of the center's audio documentary podcast, Seen on Radio. In three seasons, explorations of whiteness and maleness build to a searching look at the contradictions and possibilities of democracy. You can listen and learn more at seenonradio.org. That's S-C-E-N-E onradio.org, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Dordal, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Colleen Scheck, Christiane Wartell, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Rodrigo Tuma, Ben Cott, and Gautam Shrikishan. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.